we're at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 6. I want to look at it briefly, and then I'm going to ask us a few questions. We do have our um, old outline and a newer one, the gift of prophecy part two. And I guess what I kind of want to do is deal with a few more technicalities, but then I want to press into um, some application around around the gift of prophecy to kind of take it out of its kind of classical and formal mode so you and I can understand that prophecy is really a characteristic of what it means to be a believer in, in the kingdom of God. It is a gift. That's verse uh, number 10. And to another, the working of miracles, and to another, prophecy. That's where we are, part B of part of uh, verse 10. It is a gift, we know that, but it is also accompanied with all the other gifts that God gives us. The believer has to know that salvation is a gift. Also, everything that accompanies salvation is a gift. Your life is a gift. Your personhood is a gift. All of your faculties are a gift. Your comportment is a gift. And therefore, life and health and strength, all of that's a gift. When you know that, you can be a thankful people. Like Thanksgiving is a revelation. It's an epiphany that we have what we have only by the grace of God. So you'll meet people in the world who are not thankful. Either they forgot or they're under such duress in life that they fail to realize the blessings they have. Like most people have way more blessings than they really know and deserve. So as we're looking at the gift of prophecy, you and I are actually talking about the plentifulness or the fullness that the body of Christ, the people of God have, which makes us who we are for God's glory. We uh, worked our way through the idea of the origin of the gift of prophecy as we stated last week, the origin of the gift of prophecy is from where? It's from heaven. And therefore, it is for us a uh, work of, uh, of, of a condescension on the part of God. He condescends to speak to us. And uh, it's from heaven, but it's, its function is that of revelation. The whole purpose for prophecy or the proclamation is revelation. We talked about that. That's what we're going to get into more fully here in a moment. Uh, prophecy is to reveal God's will. It is a mechanism to reveal. That is a great quality. And the content that we utilize, God's fundamental content for prophecy is the word of God. We talked about that as well. The word of prophecy of which uh, Peter laid out for us in Second Peter chapter 1. The last thing we want to talk about briefly as we realize forever, O Lord, your word is settled where? In heaven, Psalm 119, verse 89, and therefore it has to come down to us. God has to condescend to uh, engage us. He is higher than the heavens, and we are not, and therefore if he doesn't come down, we can't go up. So to know God is for him to condescend. So the word comes from heaven, and it reveals to us. That's the functional aspect of prophecy. The goal of prophecy is to reveal to us God's will, and the content of prophecy is the word of God. That's the way your Bible closes out, speaking of the prophecy of this book. So in terms of the depository of truth, where prophecy is observed, understood, and looked at, the container of God's revelation for us, the infallible container, is the word of the living God. We also want to talk about, therefore, its impact. And I talked about that last time as well. I'll just let you know what it is. Prophecy is designed for the people of God for edification, for building up. That we will unpack more fully too as we um, make the correlation between prophecy and glossolalia languages next week. But having stated that, here's a question that I want to phrase as we get ready to look at um, part two of our outline, the modes of prophecy, and then kind of the um, impact, the impact, the impact of it is edification. What would prophecy look like or the gift of prophecy or the, the gift to declare or proclaim or set forth? Because that's what prophecy is. It's the ability to declare or proclaim or testify. These are the legal terms, testify, 
um, for God, in the behalf of God, to declare and proclaim and testify God's nature, character, and work, his will and decrees. What does, what would it look like for the community of the people of God in terms of the uh, presence and gift of prophecy characteristically? This is what I want you to think about. So what I want you to think about is the notion of the gift of prophecy being something that we all are afforded. And therefore, if that's the case, what does that look like in the life community of the people of God? What does it look like for all of the people of God to be prophets? That's what I want you to think about now. And I want to reverse that proposition kind of to, you know, to mess with you on the level of why we should understand prophecy as a normalcy of, um, of, uh, of quality and character among the people of God. When I ask the question about the community and characteristics of a people of God who are used to prophesying, proclaiming, declaring, setting forth the testimony of scripture, what does that look like? That's what we want to get into. What does that look like? That's really what your second outline, the new outline is all about, kind of like stripping away the formality and the classical nature of a prophecy as you might be thinking about it. We, we got to look at it again, but I want to ask the question, what does it look like? And I'm going to reduce it down a little bit more. What does it look like for two people who are professing believers to operate consistently in the gift of prophecy as just a normal language dynamic among themselves? Does that make some sense what I'm stating to you? Uh, I want to expand it out, just kind of drill down into it until it stops seeming like a strange thing to you. What does it look like for a believer to be committed to speaking prophetically in his or her community or wherever they are uh, with the freedom of knowing God at the level of prophetic truth? I want to drill down into that a little bit more because I want to help you remove the, the, the lenses of presupposition or the lenses of assumptions. What, what does it look like for a believer who really does have a working knowledge of God's word? And that working knowledge of God's word is an essential element in who they are as they go about expressing themselves as a child of the living God. I'm saying the same thing kind of different ways. Are you guys keeping up with me? So I want to drill down into this a little bit more just a little bit more on a practical level. And then we're gonna deal with why it's important for you and I to make sure that we don't let something like the gift of prophecy stay in the formal and classical modality of something like unique, specially gifted teachers and preachers are only the only ones that exercise the gift of prophecy. I wanna make sure you don't fall prey to that, but I want you to really think very um, broadly and simply and, and imaginatively because I'm getting ready to show you what you have already been told, which is really what God wants to um, see accomplished in the life of his people. And that is that all of his people are so well uh, versed in scripture that the gift of prophecy is a second nature to how they think and how they communicate and how they engage everything. That's what I'm talking about. So now I want to do a reverse before we get into it, if you don't mind. You can, you can visualize that, right? You might can visualize what it be. We might put it like this. Um, what would it look like if all believers had a level of maturity in Christ where their, uh, their mind and, and their aspirations and their personality traits and their, their, um, their um, interactions with their society, whatever it is, was one in which it was very evident that those people are people who spend a lot of time with God because it frames the way they think and it frames the way they interact and it frames the way they analyze things and it frames the way they engage in dialogue in general and across um, lines with each other. Am I beginning to make some sense to you? I want you to think that through and I'm getting ready now to turn it around for a moment and then we're gonna come back again. Because I'm talking about the individual believer, then I'm talking about, let's say, couples, and then I'm talking about, let's say, families, I'm talking about just a home, a home with a bunch of people, kids, wife, husband, 
um, or our single people. This is all the community of God. It's made up of all of that, right? Old people, young people. That's Acts 2.17, by the way. You, got, you should know that I'm already there. So I'm asking the question, what does it look like for us to be partakers of the divine nature at the level of our very tongues, which we use a lot for all kinds of things, don't we? We use this thing for a lot of things. For it to be actually the representative of a wellspring of reality that resides in our heart and our mind in terms of the content of biblical truth so that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth is speaking in a consistent way across all sectors of life. Am I making some sense to you guys so far? So stay with me a little bit because again, this is not a tricky question. It's not to make you feel bad. I actually want to strip away a false notion of the gifts of the spirit in terms of how they get defined by the church because of the practical, more ecclesiastical model of application, because that's really not the design of the gifts of the spirit in total. What would it look like for you or me or us or any of us as believers to um, not have the gift of prophecy? to not be people who speak forth and set forth propositional truth claims and declare the, the word of God or, or speak from a biblical worldview or understand the world in light of the word of God or um, engage men and women from the standpoint of scripture being the filter by which we dialogue, engage, communicate, um, contribute, to relationships at the level of human beings. What would it be, be like for you to be the kind of believer that never, ever communicates to people from a biblical worldview with scripture or with what we're gonna learn here today, the tenor of scripture, um, because um, you are either inadequate to that task or don't understand it as really the expectation of the believer. Did that make some sense? Now, let's, let's kind of, let's drill down into this dystopian um, framework that I'm putting. Imagine a, a professing believer who doesn't, you know, who doesn't imbibe the word of God at the level of it actually framing and shaping the way they think and therefore the way they respond and therefore the way they communicate. A man, um, and he's married to a, a believing wife. And he never speaks forth the things of God. He never frames what he is dealing with in life, the issues in life, the challenges in life, in light of God's word, and then processes those events through a scriptural expression, which what I'm describing to you right now is really the gift of prophecy, okay? Across the practical, functional level is being able to bring to bear everything we're dealing with um, through the prism of God's word. What if the husband doesn't do that? And what if the wife doesn't? What if in the home of a professing couple, the, the wife doesn't set forth biblical truth in a way that we're gonna talk about that is natural, organic, and aimed at, remember the impact of prophecy is what? What is it? Yeah, I need you to hear that, okay? Because I'm gonna, I'm gonna put some warning signs out as we talk about this, because I know the danger of what I'm talking about for our communities, because, you know, we've done a bad job as Christians throughout history with this issue of, of prophecy and things of that nature. But, but I want to talk to us about um, the possibility of comprehending what it means to be a believer who doesn't ever share the word of God at any level across any circumstance with anybody at any time. What would that look like for parents who have children, for their children never to hear mom, you know, in the appropriate fashion, in the right context, quote scripture, or set forth portions of scripture, or digest a passage of scripture into the practical everyday genre and, and vernacular of life so that it comes out as a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. You guys are starting to understand what I'm saying now, right? And, and what would that look like if the whole family just constantly goes about life without the word of God being the fundamental 
uh, modality by which they engage, interpret, analyze, communicate, you know, mutually uh, and, and across their life. What would that look like? I would, I would say that it would look pretty dark in the home. Right. So I want you to capture that for a little bit, because this is where I want to go when I uh, talk a little bit more about uh, the gift of the spirit. And I don't want to leave this g gift until we have kind of worked it through. So under modes of prophecy, I want to quickly get through that. That would be our previous outline. Jashana, there are three characteristics. One is proclamation. One is proclamation. You see that under point one of modes of prophecy. You guys see that? So proclamation simply means to proclaim, to declare, to set forth. We see that classically with the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, let's kind of look at that. No, this is a newer one. I want to go back to, okay, we're there. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, we're going to walk this through. Just got to walk through the verses. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and do what? That, that word means to preach. He's a prophet, so he's going to be prophesying. But what he's going to be doing in a modality, modally, he's going to be proclaiming. Thus saith the Lord. Does that make some sense? All right. So now the people of God are coming to church because that's the gate to, to, to the uh, church house. And as they come in the gate, Jeremiah's reminding them of what the word of God says. They're privileged, aren't they? All right. So he says, stand in the gate and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah that enter into these gates to worship the Lord. Okay, so great. That's the kind of formal uh, essence of what proclamation is. And in your outline, I'll talk about it coming through the modes of teaching, the modes of warning, and the modes of what? Do you have that in your outline? Teaching, warning, and encouragement is the previous outline. So you, can you pull that back up? So there we go. Okay, so you probably don't. So Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 1 and so forth. And all of the prophets did this. I'll give you the three categories just so you can have them. It's teaching, warning, and encouraging. Teaching, warning, and encouraging. Um, the, the, the prophetic modalities operate in three categories. Teaching, warning, and um, encouraging. And this we have already looked at in 1 Corinthians 14. That's what prophecy is designed to do. Teach, warn, and encourage. Can y'all embrace those three? Now watch this. Doesn't that sound like what a mom and a daddy's supposed to be? All right, so I'm going to leave that right there. This is what I meant about wanting to make sure you get it at the organic and practical level. And it would be that way in terms of siblings that are constantly trying to help each other stay on the right course. Would you agree with that? Like, if we love each other, we should be course correcting. And course correcting will have a didactic and educational component. It will also have a mode of warning that's called admonition. Hey, watch out for that. And then a mode of encouraging. You are doing well. God is blessing you. I can see your growth. Does that make sense? All right. So it's important for you to know that under proclamation, these modalities exist. The um, second category is what is called predictive foretelling predictive foretelling. This is unique to the Nevi'im in the scriptures. The prophets set forth testimonies of what God would do. So prophecy also is declaring the future. That makes sense, right? And, and you and I can do that too if we're operating out of the spirit of prophecy. You would, you would agree with that, right? We could easily declare the future from the standpoint of what the promises of God set forth, right? The promises of God will say, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is older, the word of God will not depart from him, even though he will depart from that word. And then we have the promise, right? If we ask God anything, you know, through prayer and supplication, according to his will, he will hear us, right? And we can actually, therefore, understand promises as potentials for predictive outcomes in terms of us wanting our children to know the Lord and wanting our children to be saved. There it is. Paul lays that out. So this is under the idea of predictive foretelling. Daniel did this. Look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 11 through 15. I want to kind of work through that really quickly before we get into the pragmatics, just to let you know, all the prophets foretold, but they didn't always just foretell. A lot of times they uh, rear tailed, talked about things in the past. Right? Often prophecies about remember, 
right? And, and, and a parent, do, do they not do that? Or do we not constantly recall yesterday or last week or the year before how God, you know, kept us and guarded us and got us through things? This is what you do as a child of God. Yea, all Israel have transgressed your law, even by departing, that they might not obey your voice. Therefore, the curse is poured upon us. And the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. This is Daniel praying for the sins of the people of God, and he's involved in it. And he hath confirmed his word, which he spake against us, against our judges that judged us by bringing upon us a great evil for under the whole of heaven hath not been done as has been done upon Jerusalem. Daniel is still uh, prophesying. Go ahead on in a few more verses. And as it is written in the law of Moses, now he's referring to Torah, the Bible, the Old Testament, all this evil has come upon us. Yet we made not our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquity and understand their truth. Now, here's what he's doing. He's taking the written prophecy and letting God knows that he's aware that they're suffering for violating the written code and not only violating the written code in terms of the written code, telling them what they should do decretively, but also warning them what they shouldn't do. And then also giving them a remedy if they do, which is to repent and call upon God. And Daniel is saying, we didn't even do that. When we did wrong, we didn't even call upon you. This is why we're still going through what we're going through. By the way, this is a form of edification here, too, because when you and I are deep down in the pit of our sinful behavior, we need to be told where we are because you cannot climb up out of the pit unless you know where you are. Sometimes edification is edification up out of the pit. But if you don't tell a person that they're in the pit, that's not edifying. Right, a few more. Notice what verse 14 says. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil, brought it, uh, brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all its works which he does, for we obey not his voice. So Daniel is laying out these terms. Look over at verse 21, Daniel 9, 21. And I'm just going to use them for one. This is the angel Gabriel talking to Daniel now, and here's what he says. Yea, while I was speaking, or Daniel says, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning being caused to fly swiftly, he touched me about the time of the evening oblation. Can you walk with me a few verses? And he informed me and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I now have come forth to give you what? Skill and understanding. And when you go through the ninth chapter, what Gabriel is going to do is give Daniel prophecy about the coming of Messiah and the return of the people in preparation for his coming. And he's going to call the content that he's um, going to share with Daniel um, the scriptures of truth. OK, so we've already talked about the idea that scripture is the uh, embodiment and codification of prophecy. This is what Daniel is going to learn, that the evil that he's confessing is going to be over with shortly. And the people of God are headed back home and Jesus will come in about 400 years, which is a function of prophecy as well. The other thing I want to say briefly, then, if you look under point number three, so we've dealt with proclamation, predictive foretelling, which is all through the Bible. Uh, now I want to just talk about the mode of prophecy in the context of worship, particularly what? Song. Miriam prophesied in song, Exodus 15, 20, and 21. I'm not going to be long with it, but I do want to talk about it. I want to make sure you capture this, that when we are engaging in worship at the level of singing, the, the content of our singing must never be strange to the content of our prophecy. It should correspond with our prophecy. Our prophecy is scripture, and so our singing should be scripture too. Our prophecy is biblical, and so our singing should be biblical too. Our prophecy is redemptive in nature, and it talks about God's work of salvation, and so our singing should correspond with that. Would you agree? And now you and I can have a massive well opened up as examples of the people of God singing to the Lord for what he has done for them. This could take up multiple studies, okay? Just letting you know. So you and I would be quick to know that when you and I have the spirit of prophecy, it doesn't stop at just kind of a regular dialogue, a vocation or a proclamation, proclamation or conversations. It pours over into our singing, our jubilation, our uh, communion with God at the melodic level. Even if the melody is the blues, 
So, I mean, if I were to stay there, you have to understand that the spectrum of singing to God doesn't only encompass singing to the Lord celebratory songs because the Lord is good. The Lord has delivered me from all my troubles. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the house of his God. Yes, but also the Lord has brought all these judgments on us because of our disobedience. Lord, we have been brought low. Deliver me out of deep waters. Deliver me from my troubles because they're like the sea. They've gone over my head. These are songs that they sing. I call them the blues. And God honors a heart that sings to him even in our woes. Does that make some sense? Of course. The Bible's clear about that. Um, so in some uh, now in uh, Exodus 15, 21, it lays this out. And Miriam answered them, sing unto the Lord. And if you look at the next verse, I just want to kind of lock it in. Verse, um, let me see here. Verse 20, go back to verse 20. Let me see if the expression is there. I want to make sure maybe I, I locked it in or I didn't. Yeah, here it is. Uh, da, 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 da. And Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand with all the women, and they went out after her with timbrels and with what? Right. So we understand the celebratory component is actually prophetic in nature, is it not? It's declarative, it's proclamatory, but it's also prophetic. Now, she was a, she was a precursor to the priesthood. First Chronicles 25, verse 1. I'm just going to share with you a few more verses to underscore this principle. This is something David knew. Did David know this? King David, First Chronicles 25, 1. I know I'm probably running too fast for you, uh, Jashana. Moreover, David and the captains of the host separated the service of the sons of Asaph. These are priests and Heman and Jeduthun, who should do what? Prophesy with what? Right. So they're declaring the word of God. They're proclaiming God's praises. They're testifying of God's goodness. They will also set forth songs of penance, repentance and grief for their rebellion. They will sing the blues. And I'm just sharing with you how that the relationship that we have with God should not merely be over in the corner of a particular kind of attitude, no disposition. It should cover every aspect of our life. And so it does here. Who should prophesy with harps, psalteries, cymbals, and the number of uh, the working men according to their service. By the way, when David started worship and he started worship for the people of God, he was called in 2 Samuel 23, the great psalmist. He was the one that started worship. And, and, the, and, and that was a model given to us uh, in the Reformation, the Protestant movement, movement around how worship was to go. Frequently, your, um, your worship leader was your pastor as well because they were scholars across the totality of what music ministry and proclamatory ministry was so that the people of God were used to what Colossians 3 verse 16 is going to lay out for us now. Colossians 3 16. So listen to what Colossians says. Let the word of Christ dwell what? Richly in you with all wisdom. Now, if that first line, which is an imperative, is working, this would bear some kind of implication to what I'm talking about, an atmosphere of people who are very commonly used to framing their dialogues, their conversations, their perspectives, their intercommunication with people through the prism of God's word. Would that not make sense? If, in fact, we are obeying that imperative, let is a Hebrew construction, which means do this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you what? Right. And so there is the assumption of a fullness, pleroma, a fullness of God's word in your life in such a way that that word is able to settle itself down in your thinking and become your prism of interpretation, becomes your grid of judgment, whereby what comes out of you becomes wisdom. Notice what it says in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and in hymns and spiritual songs, doing what? Singing with grace in your hearts. If one really understood the comprehensive nature of verse 16, this would describe a spirit-filled believer. Do you see it? This is what it would describe. 
A believer that's full of God's word would be a believer who would know how to employ the word of God in a fashion that would dispense wisdom. Remember the word of wisdom and then the word of knowledge? That's what this would indicate, that you have the apparatus of Scripture. And you remember the promises of Scripture, right? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training, all of that. So the Word of God has a broad utilitarian purpose for it. Would you agree with that? All right, so I'm getting ready to set you up for some trouble. Okay, since you said that the Word of God has this broad utilitarian benefit... Shouldn't the word of God play a significant role in our frequently addressing issues in our life? Does that make some sense? All right. So all I want you to do is take that right now and think it through because I want to um, I want to um, I want to arouse your thoughts around something that could be problematic for all of us an assumption that I want to overcome, but I just want us to keep this really interesting. This was the assignment my daughter gave me for her marriage. She said, Dad, I want you to unpack that verse. I said, sure. Do you want me to unpack the two verses that come after it? Because the requisite for a happy marriage is verse 16. Look at verse 17, Colossians 3, 17. Listen to what it says. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father by him. That's an attitudinal disposition around what you do, right? So so let the word of Christ dwell richly in your heart, right? With all wisdom, right? Uh, admonishing one another, teaching one another, right? Um, and singing with grace in your heart. Beautiful. And then here it says, make sure whatever you do, do it with Christ as the authority over your life and do it with thankfulness, right? Now he says, this here is the formula for the hierarchy of the relationship in the home. Look at the next verse. Here it is. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands. Do you see it? It's not going to happen without verse 16 and 17. Do you see verse 16 and 17? Do you see how if you remove verse 16 and 17, what you're going to have between the husband and the wife is a Hatfields and McCoy scenario. Does that make sense? I'm just letting you know this is really important. So when I was talking about the utilitarian nature of the word of God, if you and I as believers don't really believe in its profound functional utilitarian purpose, that when it comes to occupying our roles, our different roles in life, then our roles won't be able to be accomplished in any way that will ultimately glorify God. Right. Next verse, just, just in case the men thought they escaped. Let's look at verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. The only reason both of those verses are hard is because the absence of the fullness of verse 16 and 17. Does that make some sense? Because verse 16 and 17 are really not regarded as the framework for your character and calling. We can't do verse 18 and 19. We, we, can't, we can't do them because we're not spirit-filled in the, in, the, in the functional practical system. Is that coming home? This is the reason why I'm talking about the gift of, of prophecy and wanting to make sure we take the gift of prophecy out of the classical dimension and not think of it as just something that's to be kept with the preacher or the Bible teacher because actually God is really wanting the gift of prophecy to shape the complete atmosphere and all of the dominion of the life of the believer. Does that make some sense? Right. And, and we could also see then that if these things were really working like they should be, uh, it, that would also translate to the children. Would you agree? If we train our children up in the fear and the nurture of the Lord and they are actually learning Bible verses and they're not poverty stricken when it comes to the Bible verses and the Bible verses are taught right. That's what I want to go into between now and Friday. I want to talk about the right application of scripture around the idea of the gift of prophecy because they're wrong applications. Does that make some sense? So I hurried up and skipped past, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the singing modality, the worship modality, because I want to get into this. So let me go briefly into our uh, second outline, the spirit endowed, energized, focused mind. I want to deal with points one, two, and three. And I'm just going to touch on points one and two, kind of to get into the functional aspect of the gift around 
uh, around the question that I'm raising, what would the gift of prophecy in the life of the people of God look like at a community level characteristically? What would, um, what would, that, what would that look like for us? And I'm, what I mean by that is on a practical level. What would it look like practically? That's one. And, and therefore, um, the other way in which um, we are wanting it to show up, I had a, another term, it'll come back, um, socially. What would that look like socially? How, how would the body of Christ look on a practical and social level when it comes to the community operating characteristically out of a healthy uh, prophetic um, lifestyle. And then what I want to talk about is it as a phenomena, as a phenomena. Phenomena is what you're getting ready to see now. But the, um, but the application is what I'm talking about. So I want to go back to the phenomena because what happens with the phenomena is almost everybody gets enamored with and trapped by the phenomena of preaching and by the phenomena of prophecy. But they don't see the phenomena and, 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 and the expression of it as merely the first step in a call to its pervasiveness in the totality of the community at the practical level. Does that make some sense? All right, so uh, I do wanna deal with this again. So under to proclaim, it means to articulate, to express words of truth. That's simply what that means. This is beautiful. We saw it in Acts. What time do we have? What time is it? I can't hear. Thank you. That's loud enough. That is loud enough, T. All right. Very good. All right. So Acts chapter two, verse Acts chapter two, verse four. I just want us to look at it. And then I want to look at see if there was fire in the house. The only voice I'm listening for is T's because she really means to help me get out the house when it's on fire. The other brother would I'm like, I'm going to burn up with that kind of declaration. Right. Acts 2, 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them what? Right. And so we're going to unpack that when we get to it next week. Utterance is actually the term that means speaking with great clarity and dignity. That's literally what that means. Okay. Utterance means to speak with great clarity and dignity. We'll unpack that next week. And, and, and what you're looking at here is a phenomenon. Are we not? Is Acts 2 for a phenomena? Yeah. Right, and now I want you to see the impact of the phenomena. Verse 11. Look at verse 11. Uh, here, what, here is what all the people said. Cretes, Arabians, there were 17 nations, I told you. Do we not all hear them speak in our own tongue? What? Right, so here is this subject-object relationship. A group of people who are spirit-filled with the gift of languages, and they are prophesying. That's what they're doing. They're proclaiming the, the wonderful works of God to all these people in all these different ethnic groups. Y'all got that? I want you to get this with that for time's sake. The people that are speaking are not the same ethnic group to whom they are speaking to. That's one thing you need to know. So the ethnic groups are a bunch of Arabs across the whole Sinai Peninsula and Asia Minor, 17 nations. The 120 people that are talking to them are Galileans. They are Jewish people whose fundamental dialectic is a broken ancient kind of Yiddish that is a hybrid between the Arabic language and the Hebrew language. And it would, it would be equivalent to those of us who grew up in the hood who, you know, slight and distort classical English to fit the way we operate in our communities. This will be true across any poor community. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Here you are now being endowed with a gift by which you directly speak to other ethnic groups with whom you've had no training. And now not only are you speaking in their language, we'll deal with it, you are prophesying with great clarity and preciseness of their dialect. What's blowing them away is not only are they able to hear you, they are like, whoa, they speak better than us in our own language. Now, there is an application behind that that I really want to come home because right now we're kind of trapped 
by the phenomena, aren't we? I don't want you to get trapped by the phenomena. I want you to be compelled by the impact and by the function and application of prophecy. That when you and I are gifted in understanding God's word at the level of communicating it prophetically, what it does for people is it brings them near to God through that word with a level of clarity that is remarkable to them. Did that come home? It's important for you to get. That's what I'm going to be arguing for, that if we have a proper understanding and application of the gift of prophecy, it is not simply to just make noise. The phenomena is not the point. What is the point is how the phenomena draws people near to where they hear absolutely clearly what God is saying to them in their own language dialectos. And they are absolutely elated that they can hear God clearly. This would amount, if I am persuading you to hear me, this would amount to you being used by God to bless people with whom you have conversation with and they can hear you easily. Did that make some sense? Like they can hear you so easy because you are functioning in a gift that's really designed for their edification, not for your showmanship. Right, so it's important for you to get. All right, so I do wanna go on though because I wanna kinda uh, draw this down. I know I got your attention and we'll more fully unpack it on Sunday. On Friday. So under point number one, to proclaim, to articulate or express words of truth, which is what they're doing. There are three categories in which we're doing that. So point A, B, and C is the quotation of scripture. The quotation of scripture. What am I saying? I'm saying that I don't think that you have to try to always avoid quoting scripture when you're communicating with people. That if you are able to properly employ scripture, you can quote scripture as you are communicating with people in, re in relationship to what they may need. Did that come home? So I'm going to say that one more time, and I'm actually going to argue for the danger of it, but the necessity of it on Friday, because our time is up. Like, if you and I are dealing with a situation where we're hanging out with people that don't know us, or we don't know them, or we are not co-mutual believers let's just say you're working in a facility somewhere and you really are endowed with a kind of fullness of God's word that you actually have what is really going to be uh understood as as a broad word okay this is pos ramos in the Greek. It's from where we get the term rhema rhema word okay pos ramos I'm gonna deal with that later pos ramos it means that you have the ability to handle the word of God broadly and therefore you can communicate God's word with people in all kinds of contexts. And you may even be able to facilitate parts or whole of portions of scripture, literally, that will speak into that person's life in a way in which they can hear what God has to say about that thing. Did that come home? All right, stay with me a little bit then if, if it did. Because what that would mean is if I have the ability, and not everybody does yet, because that requires another gift that we're going to be looking at, and it's called discernment, okay? But if I do have the ability to understand people and, 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 and recognize where they are, and, and maybe I have the assignment to talk to them, and I, and I know God's word has the capacity to speak to them, would you agree that it has the capacity? Right, that's its claims. The claim of scripture is that it has the ability to actually reveal to men and women what is right and what is wrong. That's the claim of scripture, okay? So imagine you and I being used by God to have conversation with people who are in need and God allows us to draw up portions of scripture that could speak specifically to the subject matter that they're dealing with in a way in which it brings understanding to them. Is that possible? That's not only possible, it's necessary. Thank you, sweetie. It's not only possible, it's necessary. It's not only possible, it's necessary. So I'm going to just look at one verse and then we'll come back because she said it's 8 o'clock and I do want to stop. But I want to drill down into this because I want to deliver you and I from a, a, a history of bad 
interpretation and application of the gift of prophecy. So in the point number two, you see we're going to be dealing with on Friday, the gift of prophecy is to sustain that expression or flow as needed. Do you see that? I'm going to talk about that. Not only do you and I want to be able to communicate biblically, as Colossians 3.16 said, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. But we want to be able to experience by the aid of the spirit of God, a sustained capacity to do that. We want that to be the normative way in which we engage people. That when we engage people, not trying to control or dominate or unduly influence, what we want to be able to do is know that we are available because we have done the deep work of relating to God in a way of fullness that he may be able to use us to speak into people's lives as we wait for that door to open. Did that make some sense? Right. And that and that that's really what we're made for. We're not made to not speak into people's lives. We're made for that, right? And so there is a promise on God's part, but there is a participatory practice on our part to get to that level where we can be used in what I call the pasremos, the broad word of God being able to be applied in people's lives. Does that make some sense? Okay, so it's, it's, so the three things that we're going to be dealing with on Friday is the 70, the 70 that was with Moses. We dealt with that. I'm going to pull that up in a moment. At some point, be a short flow of truth. I want to argue that, you know, you, you don't always need to, you know, captivate and hold people for hours. Sometimes you will have an assignment where you will have just a brief word for them. Like everything is not about holding them as long as you have to listen to me on Sunday morning. Okay. That's, that's your regiment. That's your, um, that's your boot camp. When you come in here on Sunday morning, you have to be in boot camp with me for that hour and 25 minutes. But there are times when talking to people, you will have the ability, if you have a broad um, capacity for communicating biblical truth, where you're saying to them something, a word in passing. But that would have everything to do with your ability to discern the season, discern the moment, and discern the appropriateness of what you have to say in that moment. Does that make some sense? We're going to look at that again on Friday because I want to want to deal with that. And then um, sub point C, um, I want to talk about the characteristic of that communication going from gracious words to stormy words. Do you see that in your outline? From gracious words to stormy. Do you see that? Okay, so here's what I'm going to, here's what, I, here's how I'm going to close with our thoughts around that. When you look at Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of Numbers 11, where the 70 received the Spirit of God and they spake and they did not see. So Numbers 11, 25. So those are the two bookends. Numbers 11, 25 was that strange event where God gave the spirit to 70 men of the elders of, of Israel. You guys remember that? Now listen to what it says. And the Lord came down in a cloud, spake unto him, that is Moses, and took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it to the what? And remember who I told you those were in the New Testament? The Sanhedrin, right? This means leadership should be full of the spirit and capable of prophesying, right? And when I say leadership, I'm talking all leadership, formal and informal. If you run a home, you are a leader. If you have a business, you are a leader. There's going to be some place in your life as a believer where you're in leadership. So don't let it be reduced down to the formal classical mode of the pulpit. Did that, did that come home? All right, good. You're a young person, and we got many young people who listen to me. I love that. They're in college right now, and they're emailing me, Pastor, how do I deal with this view and this idea? I'm here, and they're ganging up on me. Right, well, good. They're a child of God. They have to learn how to communicate biblical truth in the midst of those kind of diabolical institutions. Would you agree with that? They got to survive. They got four years to do. <laughs> I want you to hear what it says. We'll, we'll be done in a, in a moment. I want you to hear this. Notice what it says. And the Lord came down, spoke with him, took up his spirit that was upon them, gave it to the 70. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they what? They did what? And they what? 
Do you see it? Now, I'm going to deal with the construction on Friday on that, but the essence of what is taking place there is a phenomenon. The reason why it's constructed that way is that it is a phenomena. A phenomena is what happened in Acts 2. Phenomena is when a, an event occurs, it's the manifestation of something that is not usual, not normal, and it becomes something that calls your attention. Did that make some sense? Would it be a phenomena for you to be in a situation with a bunch of, you know, secular people and a situation emerges and they don't have the answer, but you do. And God graces you to speak into that situation. Go back to our outline. Graciously. Go to our PowerPoint. Yeah, there it is. Are graciously or when necessary with stormy words. Did that make some sense? Right. So what I'm going to be talking about is the tenor of scripture application at the level of, of being prophetic, of, of, of prophesying. That everything that you and I say is not always stormy. Did that make sense? You're not always shouting at people, are going, thus saith the Lord. I'm going to get into the false modality of expression, how that is not what it means to prophesy. Did that make some sense? And, and, and the church has made a caricature out of that for a long time and has thought that that's what it means to prophesy, be full of the spirit. We're going to explain that on Friday. It certainly shouldn't come out uh, in you in the midst of a job where y'all working for somebody else. And now you standing up on a soapbox sounding like, you know, some some formal preacher, because that's not what that means. There are times when it is stormy, though. There are times when you are going to be used by God as a storm. Did you understand what I just stated? But there are also times when your words should be hallmarked by a massive graciousness. That was exactly what they said about Jesus in his first message at his own hometown in Nazareth. Did y'all hear the gracious words with which Jesus, the son of Mary, did speak? Isn't that Joseph's son? So now notice not only did his content get them, what we call the scripture, that's the content, but his character got them because the way he spoke had a unique quality of grace that was remarkable to them. So see, the Spirit of God is not just a dump truck allowing you to pour forth alphabets in people's ears. Am I making some sense? Now, this would be true in close, intimate relationships. Husbands, wives, family, children, relatives, loved ones. And in the more formal or what we would call, um, you know, platonic relationships that we would have with people. There are times when we're called to be gracious. And then there are times when we're called to be stormy. And I want us to drill down into that. Because what if we are the kind of people that don't ever share God's word with people? All right, that's it. We're going to take a break. We'll pick it up on Friday.